QD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. I'm Deanna Riley, and it's another shelter in place episode. I'm sheltering on the ranch. So I always like to remind my listeners that if you hear a dog barking or a rooster crowing or like a bull running through my living room, it's, it's, it's because we're on the ranch. Uh, as I said, or I may not have said, I'm Deanna Riley, and I am here today with the poet Allison Ludeman. Allison Ludeman has joined us here on the Hive Poetry Collective because she has a new book out that we're going to be talking about. Hi, Allison. Hi. Hi, Dion. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you here. I'm so glad that we can talk because I just love this book. It's called In the Time of Great Fires. And it was a book winner for the Catamaran Book Prize this year. And here in Santa Cruz, we love Catamaran. They do mm-hmm. so much for the literary community and they publish the most beautiful books. I wish that our audience could see this book. It has gorgeous art on the cover and they always have these little sleeves. Um, Yeah, it is a beautiful object and the artist is Julie Heffernan. She's um, located in Brooklyn, New York and she's a beautiful artist. Her work is kind of mythic and surreal and um, very feminist. And I just fell in love with her imagery. I, I saw her first in Catamaran Journal and I saw this image of a woman with fire coming out of her head. And I was like, that's perfect. Um, that's California right now. That's California. And also the fiery, the fire coming out of her head to me reminded, kind of made me think of myself. And the um, the title of the painting is Self-Portrait as a Hothead. <laughs> and <laughs> I related to that all too well because I can be a hothead sometimes. And um, also just the, I, the fever of ideas inside the fire that's coming out of her head, you can see, and I mean, that makes it sound like a horror movie or something, and it's not. It's, it's, it's more mythic and beautiful and mysterious um, rather than horrific, although it's a little eerie. And there, if you look closely at the fire, you can see images of people and trees, and there's a lot of tree you know, there's tons of trees in, in her work. So, or at least this part of it that I've seen, I don't know her whole, her, her whole it, body of work. It is a gorgeous painting, but it is very fiery mm-hmm. and it is a bit eerie and it is very natural looking. It's very woodsy looking. I think it really does capture some of the feeling of your book. Thank you. Um, I felt that way too. Well, um, I always ask my poets who come on my show to share a poem with me that particularly resonates with, with them. And you chose 
Terence Hayes is one of his many sonnet for my future and past assassins. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's when you asked me that, it was like an impossible question because I have so many poems that resonate with me, um, millions of them. Um, but I love, I, I've been exploring Terence Hayes a lot. He's been speaking to me and especially this book of sonnets. Um, and so I'll just read the poem. Uh, American sonnet for my past and future assassin. I lock you in an American sonnet that is part prison heart panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. I lock you in a form that is part music box, part meat grinder to separate the song of the bird from the bone. I lock your persona in a dream inducing sleeper hold while your better selves watch from the bleachers. I make you both Jim and Crow here as the crow, you undergo a beautiful catharsis trapped one night in the shadows of the gym. As the gym, the feel of crow scat dropping to your floors is not unlike the stars falling from the pep rally posters on your walls. I make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart. Voltas of acoustics, instinct, and metaphor. It is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. Wow, what a poem. That was Alison Luterman reading. Terrence. I just find him endlessly mysterious. It's, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just telling our audience who, that um, it was you, Alison, read Alison Luterman reading Terrence Hayes's poem. Uh, American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin here on the Hive Poetry Collective at KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Now go ahead, what were you saying? Well, I, I love the mystery of it. And my favorite line is, I make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart. I, I, I find these poems, I can just return to them over and over again. And they're mysterious enough that they still feel new to me each time they still feel fresh um i never that, really that was my favorite line too i make you a box of darkness with a bird in its heart and when i read that it reminded me a little bit of a music box which he i think he also mentions in the poem but i know he is really into the golden shovel which is yeah you take a great line and you make it the last line of your poem and i thought yeah. that would make a great golden shovel line I yes, know. it would. Yeah, he's formal. He likes form and wordplay, and um, and it's very intricate. And I'm I'm not particularly great at those things, but I really really admire them when other people do them. You know, when they do them well, and they can and and they're not and they're sometimes with formal poems they can get a little, I don't know, flat or predictable because people are just straining to stay within the form. But with him. The form frees him to be really strange inside the form. And I, I love the strangeness and the formality together. Well, this poem is a little meta because it's talking about the sonnet in the poem. Yeah. And it's also interesting because it has, it's addressing you, which could be the reader, 
but it could be America. I'm yeah. Yeah. Well, the sonnets are addressed from, to my past and future assassins. So I think they are addressed to America and um, and maybe specifically to white Americans, you know, also because he, he deals with issues of race and racism throughout the book. Um, but, but in a really fresh and interesting way, I thought. So he a did, challenging poem. He says the sonnet is part panic closet a little room in a house set aflame and yeah. <laughs> art prison. So the sonnet, and I feel like being a black man in America at the same time is yeah. part prison and part panic closet, a little room in a house set aflame. I guess the art of the poem is, boy, this, it's, a really, it's a really tough metaphor, but the sonnet, it does constrain him, but at the same time, it protects him in a world that is aflame. And then he really, really makes the comparison crazy, just really takes it out there when he says, I lock you in a form that is part music box, part meat grinder. Right. <laughs> and to separate the bird from the bone also, the song of the bird, no, the song of the um, part meat grinder to separate the song of the bird from the bone. So it's also separating the song from the bone. I mean, it, yeah, there's a violence in it. It, it. it is tough. There's definitely a violence in it. But I feel like that also reflects the violence of trying to take an emotion, a feeling and put it into words and confine it into a poem, you know, when you're trying to take something so big and so delicate and ephemeral as an emotional state of being and and pin it into words. There's a violence in that. And yeah. You picked a kind of a tough poem to look at. I, I guess we should tell our audience that Terrence Hayes has written a whole book and every sonnet in it has the same title. Right. The same title as this one. Well, like I said, it wasn't an easy choice when you gave me that choice. I mean, I I have others that I could have gone with, um, but I guess I wanted also to speak to what's been going on this year um, and in all of our consciousness around civil rights issues that are at the forefront and, um, you know, and the fires and the pandemic and, you know, the, the difficulty of this year, and it is a difficult poem, but um, kind of that's where we are. So it's a good one too, because it's kind of an ars poetica. It's kind of a poem yeah. about the difficulty of taking the, this world that you're talking about and putting it into a poem uh, because there's, there's there's a certain violence to it and a certain healing to constraining all the emotion and all the issues and all the terror and all the right. into a 14 line sonnet. But I do think that his final line really does sum it up. Voltas of acoustics, instinct, and metaphor. It is not enough to love you. It is not enough to want you destroyed. Right. And right. that's the way we feel about America right now. Right. Right. Good point. Yeah. You're making me see more layers in the poem than I had seen before. It's nice to talk about it and unpack it together. 
I felt like I could just go on and on with this one. Um, yeah, I know. That's each of these are like, and you know, when I was young, I was in a performance of Shakespeare sonnets, and so we spent. It was a wonderful experience. We spent about four or five months just rehearsing the sonnets and learning them. And each of those, each of Shakespeare's sonnets are like this infinite box that you can just unpack and unpack and you never get to the bottom of it and you always discover more. And I'm finding that also in, in the Terence Hayes work. And I aspire, you know, it's it they're very dense and they're not easy on a first read. You know, you really have to reread, reread and talk to people about them. And then they begin to open up and flower more and more and more. Got to slow down. Well, yeah. That, that yeah. American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin, one of many by Terence Hayes and Alison Luderman brought that poem in to the Hive Poetry Collective to kick off our conversation here at KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. So, which poem do you think that in your book, In the Time of Great Fires, do you think resonates most with American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin? Which one do you want to read next? Well, I, I should be so lucky as to, you know, write a poem that, you know, has that kind of density to it. That's not what I can, you know, I'm not at that place yet where I can do that. I aspire to be. But um, Ode to Aspirin is maybe got a little bit of the strangeness and it's almost the size of a sonnet. It's 16 lines. Um, so this is called Ode to Aspirin. Oh, little white O of 3 a.m. Oh, invisible door. Oh, lozenges of the skull and shoulders. Oh, thumbs on eyelids, hardened pillows. Oh, flicker of tongue. Oh, hard to swallow. Oh, dry, oh, heavy, lifting dream. Humble, anonymous country of gray dawn windows. New mother heating bottles and staring at the cracked linoleum. Oh, whale that will not be comforted. Oh, shop right, right aid, Walgreens, CVS. Democracy of fluorescent lights and gray-eyed pharmacists. Cramp-shouldered truck drivers with long roads ahead. Two fried eggs over easy, sausage, grits with maple syrup, biscuits, pie, and coffee, coffee, coffee. Oh, school teachers with 30 unlined faces, five times a week, times forever. Welcome to Western civilization. Oh, anodyne, alleviate America. Take a little bottle with you wherever you go. <laughs> that was Alison Luderman reading Ode to Aspirin from her new book that came out just in September in the time of great fires. And this is available what, on Amazon, at your local bookstore, anywhere? You know, I think the best place to get it is through catamaranliteraryreader.com. I don't know if it's on Amazon yet. I checked and I didn't see it there. I, I think they're going to put it on there. But um, I think the best way to get it right now is either through Catamaran directly or through your independent bookstore. They'll order it for you. Um, I will make sure. We will have a link. We will have a link. That whole thing online without 
even going into the. We'll have a link uh, on the podcast for people to get it uh, where they can find it. So yeah, this is a very short poem. I think if you just like moved lines around a little bit, you could have made it 14 lines like a sonnet. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, I could have made a sonnet. I, <laughs> I'm trying to make them right now. It's hard for me to squeeze myself into 14 lines. I tend to sprawl out a little bit more than that usually. Yeah, it's like a girdle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I'm speaking for myself here. Um, um, what you've got here, though, is a list poem. Yeah. Yeah, it is a list poem. That's, yeah, exactly. It is. And it's really kind of funny because it's a list of different items relating to the aspirin. Mm -hmm. It's not just renaming the aspirin. It does the first line. It, the first line it does rename the aspirin. A little white O of three a.m. Mm. But then it goes into why you need the aspirin. Passages mm. of the skull and shoulder. I mean, you need it for your skull and your shoulders because you're tight and in pain. And then, and the feeling of thumbs on eyelids, hardened pillows. You need it mm. because that's how you feel. And then you go into the physical act of taking the aspirin, flicker of tongue, hard to swallow, oh dry, oh heavy lifting dream. So the, the things that you list, the items that you list are not parallel. No, it's not, it's not super linear. I feel like I was free associating, kind of freestyling when I was writing it and just letting myself uh, free associate to the concept of it. And that's what poetry is about. It kind of tracks how our minds free associate. Yeah. And connect things together. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and going from the very personal experience of having a headache myself and being grateful that there's aspirin in the house to take. And then thinking about all over America, probably all over the world, people you know taking aspirin and and kind of our lifestyles too, which make us need it. Yes, it's very proletarian. It, it, yes. It's cheap. Right. It's effective. It's right. Any Walgreens, any anywhere, any even any like little gas station, you know, food mart thing will have it. These are the kind of things we have to be grateful for right now. Yeah. Yeah. They're the little portals, yeah. the little portals into the sacred. Yeah. yeah. yeah Somebody and, thought this up and made it really available for us. So thank you. Yeah. And it's an ancient thing, right? It comes like, I think it comes from the willow tree and like e even the Indians or indigenous people knew about willow bark and. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I love the list. Oh, Shoprite, Rite Aid, Walgreens, CVS, Democracy of Fluorescent Lights. Mm -hmm. It ends with probably the most quotidian piece of advice. <laughs> Take a little bottle with you wherever you go. And that's sort of... <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like, take this little gift. <laughs> yeah. 
they're great. Oh, to ask them. Well, that was a good one to read after the Terence Hayes sonnet, mm. Ode to Aspirin, out from Alison Luderman's book, In the Time of Great Fires. So just, I don't know, maybe I'm just gonna ask you a question about your craft. Are you one of those people who writes every day, no matter what? Or are you one of the more wait for the muse to hit me kind of people. Do you let it go for a while? Or are you very strict? I'm not very strict. I mean, I, I have a, an off and on morning pages, you know, routine where I get up and have a cup of coffee and write longhand in the morning, but it's not like it's great poetry. It's, um, and it's not like I do it every, every day. I mean, I do it many days. And I do find that when I'm doing it, it does help the flow. It's like, a, it's not like I write anything great when I do the morning pages, which were popularized by Julia Cameron in her book, The Artist's Way that came out in, I don't know, the eighties, I think. Um, but I do do them on a semi-regular basis and they do help the flow. And then the other thing I do, if I'm feeling like I want to write a poem is I just sit and read poetry for half an hour, an hour. And, you know, the act of reading and certain poets kind of trigger me more to make me want to write. So I look for those those poets and I have to kind of switch them up a little bit. You can't I can't reread the same people all the time um, because I feel like poetry is a conversation between me and others. So if I'm sitting there and I read a poet's book or a part of their book, I want to speak back to them and I want to speak back to them in that language of poetry. So that's what gets me going. Are you reading anything you find particularly inspiring right now? Well, I've been reading this Terrence Hayes over and over. Um, and I'm really, I'm dying to read the next Diane Seuss book. She's got also got a, a sonnet sequence called Frank. Um, I don't even know if it's out yet. I'm waiting to see if Santa, I put it on my list for Santa, but I'm waiting to see if Santa actually gives it to me. And if Santa doesn't, then I'm going to get it for myself. <laughs> um, I, of course, I always love to read Ellen Bass and um, Marie Howe. My God, she's she. Although she's kind of so incredible and untouchable that like I can't do what she does because I'm not a Catholic mystic. But still, she's very inspiring to me. Um, Dorian Lux, um, Jane Hirschfield, uh, you know, all those guys. Uh, there's a lot. There's many. Um, one of my favorite poets is Tess Gallagher. She was my other candidate for like, you know, what poem really resonates with you. Her poem, The Hug, is one of the poems I am always sharing with people. I think it's a great poem for these times. The Hug is, um, it describes an encounter on the street with a, a guy who seems to be homeless who asks her for a hug and she gives it to him and um, with her partner's encouragement. And it's just a, the most beautiful poem. So mm -hmm. I think it's it's a beautiful poem for our time right now in lockdown. Mm. That's, yeah, that's the kind of thing we want right now. It's just these little pieces of beauty to remind us. And human connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, why don't we go on and read another of your poems? Uh, do you have one in particular that you would like to read? Well, you had just asked me when we were chatting before um, that uh, that you'd like me to read the one called "What We Did in the Resistance," um, and since I'm record, we're recording this in December, 
very much looking forward to Biden's inauguration um, in January, but still kind of in the middle of, you know, all the Michigas with the with the challenges that he's going through. So it's on page 54 in your book. Is I think it's on page, is it on page 54? Let me just yes. find. Um, sorry, I'm uh, sorry. Well, I'll just tell our audience that this is the Hive Poetry Collective and I'm Deanna Riley and I'm talking to the poet, Alison Luterman, because she has a new book out in the time of great fires. And we're reading from that book here on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. And I found it. <laughs> and so this poem was written, um, you know, with Trump's in, uh, around Trump's inauguration and it, it's called uh, in 19, no, in 2017, sorry. Um, and it's called What We Did in the Resistance. Um, what we did in the resistance. In the beginning, we wept. Well, some of us wept. Some of us walked around stunned as if pieces of sky had fallen out of the sky and revealed themselves to be chunks of blue plaster. We examined the chunks. We shook plaster dust out of our hair. There was so much dust. We craned our necks and stared up. Now we saw the scaffolding, the, what do you call it, sheetrock? The drywall, the lath. We saw the insulation full of asbestos. We saw how the walls were stuffed with it like money. Everything was revealed, yet nothing was clear. If we were in a cunningly devised structure not of our making, was it a theater or a prison, a shopping mall or a mausoleum? In the beginning, as I have said, we wept. We embraced on the street when we saw each other. We sat in cafes, sit, drinking coffee, digesting our grief. The rest of the time we sat in front of glowing screens. We gathered at night and made signs, not my president and pussy grabs back. We stapled them to sticks and marched in exaltation all over the world. We had never seen before how many of us there are. We clicked and liked and signed and donated and called our Congress people and sent postcards and checks. We spoke of girding ourselves for the long fight. We spoke of a marathon. We spoke of walking in the footsteps of the elders. We spoke of coal miners in Pennsylvania and Kentucky who had voted for Trump. And still the cat box needed to be cleaned. The oil in the car changed, classes taught, bills paid, dishes washed. And still the rains came down epically, biblically. We joked about end times and the witching trees with their bare black branches sprouted the tiniest of new buds, almost invisible at first, a red tip at the nodes, a subtle fire and then overnight purple blossoms, trees who knew, know nothing of elections, who speak only of persistence. 
For despite everything, earth continued to turn from light to darkness and into light again. Over and over it rolled as it had been rolling through generations of empire and uprising, extinction and evolution. And once again, to our surprise, we noticed that it was spring. Thank you, Allison. May this spring be like a real spring. <laughs> spring yeah. 2021. That was Allison Luderman reading in the um, reading from her book in the time of great fires. That was what we did in the resistance. You know, I I think that your great strength, your great power is is one turns and discovery, which I think are the hardest part of poetry. What's the layer under the layer? What's mm. the, what's the insight on life? Mm. What what have I learned in the poem? I, I your poems just have many many voltas. Maybe that's why you love the sonnet so much because that's what the sonnet is about. But the other thing I love about your poem is you have these epic similes, almost <laughs> in like the sense like the original sense of an epic simile, like in the Odyssey, where there'll be a long explanation of how Odysseus' men came running toward him. And have you ever seen sheep that run to the shepherd when they're ready to be fed and how they love the shepherd and the shepherd pets them? And this is this is the way the men greeted Odysseus. And you so you just have these, these metaphors that go line after line after. It's like you don't give up on them. You just keep <laughs> digging into the metaphor. And this is what I really loved about this poem. It's this like Truman show like metaphor of looking up at the sky and realizing you're constrained in the sky. And let me just read this. Mm. Some of us walked around stunned. Okay, so what, like, what was being stunned like? And then the simile begins, as if pieces of sky had fallen out of the sky and revealed themselves to be chunks of blue plaster. We examined the chunks. We took, we shook plaster dust out of our hair. There was so much dust. We craned our necks and stared up. Now we saw the scaffolding, the, what do you call it? Sheetrock, the drywall, the lab. We saw the insulation full of asbestos. We saw how the walls were stuffed with it, like money. Everything was revealed, yet nothing was clear. If we were in a cunningly devised structure, not of our making, was it a theater or a prison, a shopping mall or a mausoleum? So I just love this shock that I guess, especially white people had. I, mean, I think the people of color were like, yeah. Yeah, I, I think so too. It's almost embarrassing the knife day that, um, that I've, I had and many of my friends. And also, of course, we're living in a bubble in the Bay Area and just really didn't understand what was going on in other parts of the country. I mean, I plead guilty on all counts of that. Very naive, very bubbly. And this wall or ceiling, it's it's um, leaking or it's dropping so much dust, so many, yeah. just all of it, just so much. And it's asbestos right. 
it's asbestos, which is poison, and it's money, which is capitalism, and it's institutional. If we were in a cunningly devised structure, it's it's like institutional racism. What is it? It's maybe a prison for some people. It might be a shopping mall for other people. I point to myself. And uh, a mausoleum for those that it destroys. Yeah. So that That is an, an epic simile. I, I really love that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh. Na Naomi Newman performed this poem as part of a show that she constructed called World on Fire. She, she's a, a wonderful national, I think she should be a national treasurer. She co-founded the Jewish Traveling Theater with um, Corey Fisher, who just passed away this year. And um, she's a brilliant, beautiful actress, actor in her late 80s. And she performed 90 minutes of poetry from memory, including this poem, but also a bunch of other poems about the state of the world right now. It was, it was amazing. And that was before the pandemic, obviously, I think in 2018 or 19. That must have been so cool yeah. to see your poem perform like that. It was. It was amazing to see her do it. Um, and if she put her own spin on it, um, which was great. You get your poems a lot in the sun, which is quite yeah. an accomplishment. And that must be really gratifying. I, I think I read once a statistic that one out of three people in Vermont get the sun. Really, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, uh, it, the, the Sun readers are passionate readers. I mean, they, they, the Sun is more than just a publication. It's like a relationship between the readership and the Sun, a very personal relationship. So people will write to me after a poem is published there. They'll find my, my website and they'll, they'll write me a note and I always write back. Um, and I, yeah, it's it's been a long a long time since the 90s, early 90s that I've been publishing in there, 30 years. It must be nice to know that you're in conversation with such a huge number of people and that your ideas and your discoveries are being read by so many people. It is, it's, it's amazing actually, and, and kind of humbling and um, feels, feels sort of responsible in a, of, to hold up my end of the conversation, you know, and to be responsive to them. And you teach too, is, is that is that correct? Yeah, I've been teaching for many years um, at a private school called the Writing Salon. It's for grownups, you know, adult, it's an adult education. Uh, it's the website for it is writing, www.writingsalons with an S at the end.com. And it's located in Berkeley, but of course now it's virtual. So we're Zooming and I'm getting, I have a student in my current class who's Zooming in from Arizona and you know, all over. I mean, some of my colleagues have students who are Zooming in from other countries even. Um, so right now, if, if people are interested, it's the time to, I think we'll continue to have some kind of virtual component even after the pandemic is over. Um, but yeah, I've been teaching there for many years. And I was a poet in the schools for 20 years uh, in the Bay Area. And I've also taught workshops at Esalen and Omega and all around the country, so. Do you have a particular philosophy of teaching? 
or something that you particularly imp try to impress upon your students? Uh, um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think teaching is a, is an intimate relationship, you know, where you're receiving and giving. It's a, it's a relationship. And um, each student comes with their own or is their own particular, you know, has their own particular set of needs and their own kind of language. So for me, it's a very personal and intimate act to try and figure out where's the student and, and how can I meet them where they are. Um, I've joked that on my tombstone, I will have it written, be specific, you know? <laughs> That's probably the thing I say the most is like, be, can you be more specific? You know, can you really, can you narrow, can you focus in, you know, like, um, it's that's the work of writing i think is to take these big general things and to really hone in on what am i really trying to say what am i you know and and i'm personally i'm on thesaurus.com a lot looking for the right more you know so and and to teach students i mean there's some basic things like people don't always realize how many drafts it takes to get the thing right um because we all grew up i grew up with you know three drafts rough draft second draft, final draft, you know, and um, actually in my real life as a writer, it's hundreds and hundreds of drafts sometimes. I mean, I wouldn't want, my students don't all need to go through the kind of torture I put myself through, but but I do try to impart that it's work, you know, it's that to get it honed and polished is, is actual work. Mm, yeah, I agree. You, Yeah, every once in a while, I think I get a gift from the gods, but yeah, and sometimes you do, right, and and thank you, you know, and sometimes I get like three quarters of a poem that's a gift from the gods, and then I have to really work like hell to get that last quarter or those last, you know, lines to fit or to work, yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and read uh, one more poem? Oh, we got time for more than one, maybe probably two more at least. Is there a poem that you'd like to you'd like to go ahead and read? Um, I think I'll read um, the canoe because that's an that's one of the poems in the beginning that I like and it's short-ish. It's pretty short um, and it's very self-explanatory. Oh. Canoe. When I was young, years ago, canoeing on the green, green river with my young first husband, I wriggled out of my shorts eased over the lip of our little boat and became eel woman, naked and glistening, borne along in the current. He paddled, I floated and whirled and let the ripples take me. Even an hour of that kind of freedom can last for years and years, can become a touchstone you return to long after the rented canoe has been returned and the road trip has ended, and then the marriage, and then the husband's brief life, and you yourself have become someone else entirely. Still, you return in your mind to the days you could set up a tent in the dark and build a small fire from birch bark and newspaper and sit beside it, savoring your muscles' sweet ache as one by one, the uncountable stars came out. 
Oh, thank you, Allison. That was beautiful. That was Canoe from In the Time of Great Fires, Allison Ludeman's new book. I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. So I guess canoeing in a river is kind of the central metaphor of this poem. Mm. I love that yeah. the speaker becomes eel woman. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Even an hour of that kind of freedom can last for years and years. It really is interesting how time works in a poem. It, it, it creates a landscape where time takes on a kind of a different feeling. It, mm. It's very nonlinear. This, 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 event that happens in the past in the poem brings us into the present. It lives with the speaker. Yeah, those moments that we have um, of freedom, of real freedom or of real release, you know, they can be few and far between. I mean, I don't get them every day or every, even every month or year. I wish I had more of them, but even to get any of them is a great blessing. The entire, an entire lifetime is contained in this poem. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. The marriage, the husband's life, and the speaker has changed. Even an hour of that kind of freedom can last for years and years, can become a touchstone you return to long after the rented canoe has been returned and the road trip has ended, and then the marriage, and then the husband's brief life, and you yourself become someone else entirely. So truly, like it's a little like, it's like a little time warp uh, right it's the time capsule yeah you're right yeah you're right I didn't see it that way but you're right that poem took years to complete I mean I had the that was one of the ones where I had the first part of it and it was a gift from the gods and it came easily and then to find the ending was um, murder she wrote <laughs> it was really took a really long time which kind of goes with the nature of the what the poem is talking about the event happened and then it's like to encapsulate what the whole thing meant takes years and years. And of yeah. course that ending, it's one and of the- sometimes it does. Yeah, it does take years sometimes. That what you said, I think I interrupted you. Yeah, yeah, that, it does take years sometimes to understand the meaning of something that happened in our lives when we were young. Yeah, I have a few events that I just keep writing about over and over and over from different angles. I just, it just won't let me alone. Yeah. The end of this poem, it's one of those, some, some poem endings, they, they kind of fly off into eternity. It's, this poem really is about time, isn't it? It's floating down the river of time and it ends with savoring your muscle sweet ache as one by one the uncountable stars come out. Mm -hmm. So it just flies off into space. Right, right. And that was kind of the only place it could fly off into. And I kept trying to make it uh, 
I, I tried a million different things before I got that. Yeah. It's funny. It takes me a long time to be simple, you know, because <laughs> I, you know, there's an impulse to be fancy and find a, like a really intricate metaphor, which is what I kept trying to, you know, make fit into that ending. Like, a, you know, I had some metaphor about the overturned canoe in the pages of a book and blah, 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 blah. And then it was like, no, it actually wants to be kind of simple. Mm. Don't get fancy. Yeah, I think it was Ernest Hemingway said, I would have made the novel shorter, but I didn't have the time. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fabulous. Okay. Well, let's float down the river of time a little bit and read another one. Okay. Um, well, I was thinking about Some Girls, um, which is a, a poem that I, I really like. Um, it came out it came out this year um, in the New York Times. And so that was exciting. And um, I just, sorry, I thought I had it here. It's on page 58. Thank you so much. You know, I have a poem called Some Guy. <laughs> That's great. We could put them together, some guy and some girls. Yeah. Um, this is kind of an ode to, again, there's a political part of it. Um, you know, there's been this resurgence of young female leadership in our in, lately that's been so exciting for me to watch as an older woman, you know, watching Greta Thunberg and um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Emma Gonzalez and, you know, on and on and on, all these amazing young women, really young, and others who, who I can't remember their names, who've been leading the environmental movements and political movements, anti-gun, you know, everything. They've been just amazing. And of course, there have been some amazing young men too, but this poem focuses more on the young girls. So it's called Some Girls. Some girls can't help it. They are lit sparklers, hot-blooded, half-naked in the depths of winter, tagging, moving trains with the bright insignia of their fury. I've seen their inked torsos, falcons, swans, meteor showers, and shadowed their secret rendezvous, walking and flying all night over paths traced like veins through the deep body of the forest, where they are trying on their new wings, rising to power with a ferocious mercy not seen before in the cities of men. Having survived slander, abuse, and every kind of exile, they're swooping down even now from treetops where they were roosting, wearing robes woven of spider webs and pigeon feathers. They have pulled the living child out of the flames and are prepared to take charge through the coming apocalypse. I've learned that some girls are boys some are birds, some are oases ringed with stalking lions. See, I cannot even name them, although one of them is looking out through my eyes right now. One of them is writing all this down with light struck fingers. That was Alison Luderman reading Some Girls from her book In the Time of Great Fires. 
I'm Deanna Riley. This is the Hive Pop Tree Collective, and this is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Did you notice that this poem begins and ends with light? Mm. I didn't. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> I'm learning much more about my poems through your perceptive reading. Some girls can't help it. They are lit sparklers. Mm. That's the first line. Now that I start, I have to read a little more. Some girls can't help it. They are lit sparklers, hot-blooded, half-naked in the depths of winter, tagging moving trains. I just loved half-naked in the depths of winter, tagging moving trains. And then I love about how you talk about their tat like their tattoos. It took me a minute to figure out what it was. Mm. Tagging moving trains with the bright insignia of their fury. Mm. I've seen their inked torsos, falcons, swans, meteor showers. Mm. But then it ends with, I can't even name them, although one of them is looking out through my eyes right now. One of them is writing all this down with light struck fingers. Mm -hmm. So it begins with sparklers and it ends with light struck fingers. Joining the speaker with the young girls. Yeah, well, because I was a young girl, not not that long ago. And because I feel like we all have that energy inside of us of, um, I mean, including men, you know, that, that that young feminine fiery energy that is, you know, a universal energy that, you know, we all can hopefully access sometimes, passionate and fiery. And um, I'm fortunate to have a couple of beautiful nieces and a goddaughter. They're all in their, their teenagers and they are on fire to, um, to correct injustice and do good in the world and make things and create. And, you know, there's just a beautiful flame in them that I want to protect. Yeah, I was a high school teacher for many years and um, people would say, oh, young kids nowadays. And I said, no, you know, you just yeah. don't realize how amazing so many of them are. Right. Yeah. They're incredible hearts, just beautiful, huge, generous hearts uh, and very tender. So there seems to be in here, uh, I kind of don't know if I'm reaching here, but I feel like there's kind of a contrast between the way the girls are described um, compared to a more industrialized or maybe male imagery. The girls, of course, they have falcon swans and meteor showers on their bodies, which are all images of nature. And mm. their, their paths are traced like veins through the deep body of the forest where they are trying on their new wings, rising to power with ferocious mercy not seen before in the cities of men. Mm. So it seems like they're pulling from nature for their power. Yeah, I think so. I love the line. I've learned that some girls are boys. <laughs> yeah, and I have learned that. <laughs> yeah. Some girls are boys, some girls are non-binary, you know, and, and some boys are girls, you know, some there's uh, what we're learning about gender now is that it's so much more in interesting and flexible and movable than I was brought up to think to know, you know. So it's it's been a very interesting couple of years of learning more about that. Yeah, my daughter is pregnant right now, and she was talking about this whole concept of a gender reveal. 
where people mm. make a big deal about whether their kids are a boy or a girl. And I guess there was a gender reveal that set California on fire. They like exploded like a cannon or something. And yeah, yeah, they, yeah, yes. There's so yeah. many things wrong with that. And, but, and that baby could grow up to be like non-binary or trans or something. I mean, that would be the ultimate irony of that story. Who knows? But, but. And I was, I, we were laughing going, well, how do you have a gender as a construct reveal? <laughs> that's good and I do know that there are some parents who are not revealing the gender of their baby even after it's born like they're just refusing to reveal that to the world they give the baby a, a name that could work either way and and don't identify it and let on the theory that the baby gets to choose when they get a little older mm. so yeah. it's a, you know it's a thing <laughs> I could have used a little more of that when I was growing up. <laughs> that would have been, been very helpful. Well, I think we have time for one more poem. Well, let's see. Let me ask you this first before we go into another poem. What projects are you working on now? Oh, um, great question. Well, I'm working on a musical project with a collaborator, um, Richard Jennings. Um, and he and I have been working on this musical for a couple of years, and it's gone through many iterations. It's called The Shyest Witch, and um, <laughs> I'm writing the lyrics and the book, and he is the composer of the music, but we're, you know, we're also collaborating on the ideas in it. And um, so right now I'm trying to fit words to a round that he wrote um, for squirrels. I'm doing a, a, a song for these this squirrel trio who are like our comedians in the show. Um, and that's a fun project. And then I started to um, try to do a sonnet sequence myself, which is why I've been so interested in Terrence Hayes and in Diane Seuss's book, Frank. And um, I think, you know, I Wanda Coleman did American Sonnets, which is what inspired Terrence Hayes. So I want to try my hand at it. Um, I don't know if I can pull it off or not, but it's a fun thing to to try. And then I'm always just trying to say coming out in the sun, January 2021, um, about the fires. So about living in Northern California during the time of the fires. Have you ever read the crowns, the sonnet crowns, the crowns of sonnets? Have you ever read those? Yes, I have. I think Marilyn Hacker has had one, and yes, I, I have. Those are incredible. Vivi yeah. Francis has some. That to, to tell our audience, uh, tell me if I've got this wrong because I might have it wrong. But the last line of every sonnet is the same as the first line of the following sonnet. Correct? Is it? I think it's something like that. And then there's a final one that pulls it off. I don't, I'm the wrong person to ask, but it's a it's it's like the sonnet on steroids. It's you know the difficulty of the puzzle that you have to solve is great. And as we were speaking before the show began, I like to rough up the forms a little bit. I like imperfect sonnets. I like imp to myself to write imperfect villanelles. I have a lot of imperfect villanelles, not in this new book so much, but in some of my previous books, um, I've written a bunch of imperfect villanelles because I can't, I, basically I can't write a perfect one. I'm not, I'm not great at fitting into the rules, but I like to kind of have a little more leeway within the rules, a little structure and a little uh, room for, for messing the structure up. I guess uh, 
the word villain is related to the word villanelle? Yes, because it was a song that was originally sung by the villain in the in the play. But villain in those days didn't mean the bad guy. It meant like, um, you know, the working class, like the clown, you know, like uh, in Midsummer Night's Dream, Bottom and all those guys, they were the villains, quote unquote, you know, they're uncouth, they were not the refined, the kings and queens, and they were there for comic relief. So it was they, were the, they were the villager. Yeah, yeah, I think it might be related to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, like to, I like to say all my failed poems are villanelles. <laughs> Uh, yes, just call it a villanelle and yeah, slap <laughs> some whipped cream on it. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we just have a little bit of line, a time left. And I think that what you should do is just read a really short poem and oh, then yeah. we're done. So okay. I don't know. Yellow Fields is short. Okay. Uh, what, give me the 23. Page. 23. Okay, Yellow Fields. Um, yellow Fields. Bitter as black earth with its worms and pebbles is that first swallow of coffee, the first morning we wake in each other's arms, having promised the previous night that this is it, God willing, one of us will bury the other. Bits of old leaves, chaff, dried grass still cling to my hair, caught in the twisted sheets in the salt of your stubble. I've brought the yellow fields to bed with us. You set steaming cups on side tables. Fold yourself back beside me so I can bury my face in your velvety neck. Like a horse nuzzling its mate in a rainy pasture. And like this, it is settled without much discussion at a juncture that does not feel like a juncture, more like a recognition of something agreed upon long before. Ah, uh, a love poem. A love poem. <laughs> a love, a poem. love poem. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Allison Luterman. Thank you, Diane. It was such a pleasure. All these poems were from her wonderful book, In the Time of Great Fires. Check it out. There'll be a link on the pod cast uh, for you to find how to get the book and a little more about Ellerson Luterman and a link to the poem by Terrence Hayes. This has been the Hive Poetry Collective. We're here every Sunday at eight o'clock. Please continue to tune in. You can find us on Facebook and we have a website, hivepoetry.org. I'm Deanna O'Reilly. This is KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM.